everybody. Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today I really am so excited to be joined by Stephen Macy. He covers the Supreme Court for The Economist and is a professor of political studies at Bard Early College, Manhattan. He is also the author of American Justice 2015, the dramatic 10th term of the Roberts Court. Stephen, thank you so much for being here and for passing judgment. I have wanted to have this conversation for a long time, and I'm really just so happy you're here and that we get to talk about this. Oh, Jessica, I'm so happy to be with you. You know, we've been Twitter friends for a while, and I've been looking forward to this moment. So thanks for having me on. I want to jump right into a piece that you wrote that's been getting a lot of attention. It was in The Atlantic. It's called The Supreme Court Justices Do Not Seem to Be Getting Along. And Stephen, just for our listeners who might not be on a first name basis with the Supreme Court Justices, could you tell us a little bit about this current court and who's on it and just maybe very, very briefly, just one or two sentences about the people. I think that the audience probably knows it's a six to three conservative court. But one of the things that your piece really brings out is the difference in the personalities of the justices. So maybe starting with Justice Roberts, I'm wondering if we could just chat for a little bit about the various personalities of the nine justices. I would love to, sure. You know, I think we're coming from a place where we had a very stable court for a number of years between Justice Kagan and Justice Gorsuch. That was a a seven-year period where we had no changes on the court. And since 2017, four of the nine seats have turned over. So in in another less than seven years, four-ninths of the court is different. So Several justices have said in the past that every time a new justice joins the court, it's a new court that has to reorient itself and everybody has to forge new relationships and they physically shift their seats so they have new seatmates. And there's just been so much tumult and so much change and so much uh, political posturing and maneuvering outside the court that has had such a strong impact on the personnel on the court and the decisions that the court is reaching that I think it's not surprising we're seeing some ambivalence among some justices toward each other and sometimes even expressions of disrespect or frustration one to the other. You wanted to start with Roberts, and I think he's a good place to begin because he's one of the less demonstrative justices in terms of uh, showing any negative emotion toward anyone else. He's an extremely affable leader of the court. Uh, He has a very friendly way, a very wry sense of humor. Everyone seems to like him, uh, and he sits there in the middle and really tries to hold everybody together. He's had a lot of challenges over the past couple of years with everything going on outside the court and questions about the legitimacy of the court that have come with uh, the extraordinary way that Donald Trump and Republicans in Congress have reshaped the court in their image since 2017 uh, and decisions that have been reached that uh, are revolutionizing the law in the country that I think he's under a lot of strain. And just a small detail I think a lot of your listeners may not know about 
At the end of last April, it was the last oral argument sitting of the term, and it was the last oral argument that Justice Stephen Breyer took part in. There was a lovely little testament to Stephen Breyer that uh, John Roberts offered. He made a little joke. He complimented the, the justice and said how much they're going to miss him. And his voice cracked and broke. He was, it was clearly an emotional moment for him. And this was just days before the leak of the Dobbs opinion, which I know we're also going to talk about. So he knew at that point that Dobbs uh, was going to overrule Roe versus Wade and that the court was going to be facing a lot of scrutiny and disappointment by many members of the American public. And I think he knew that the type of comity and uh, positive relationships that have defined the court uh, were going to come under strain. So I think he knew that this fall was going to be a different court and a more difficult court to manage and to sort of keep straight and happy. Stephen, I'll interrupt you for a moment there. I mean, I think I remember listening to that moment because they were live streaming audio as they will continue to. And I remember hearing the break in his voice and thinking, oh my gosh, he knows what's about to come. And as you mentioned, it was before Mm -hmm. the Dobbs leak, which obviously changed everything. We had Linda Greenhouse on the podcast a while ago, and she, I'm going to paraphrase, but basically said her view of Roberts is, he wants to get to the same place as his conservative colleagues. He just wants to do it in a way where it seems more legitimate. And again, apologies to Linda Greenhouse if I just mischaracterize that. But is that, that's also my view. Is that also your take, which is, it's not necessarily that the outcome is a problem for him. It's that any sort of rift he might have with his more conservative colleagues is really about how quickly we're going and therefore how it may look to the public and whether or not certain moves are threatening the integrity of the institution, not the substantive outcome necessarily. Oh, as with almost all things Supreme Court related, I think Linda Greenhouse is right about that. And I think your characterization is astute of what she said. Um, I've seen her make that and heard her make that point in, in other places. I think that's right. Roberts has the same ideological commitments. He comes from the same place, but he has a different style. And he is well known, and I think justly known, as an incrementalist who doesn't want to move the court too quickly in any direction. He doesn't always abide by that. I mean, there were a lot of other rulings last June that were significant and momentous, and he joined them fully. Uh, including the decision radically expanding gun rights and the decision that made it more difficult for Congress to address climate change. But when it came to the Dobbs decision, even though he, like the other five conservatives, voted to uphold the Mississippi law, he did not vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. And in fact, he criticized the five justices to his right by saying this was an unnecessary, uh, serious jolt to the legal system and to the society that the court was not originally even asked to do. And the five justices to his right, nevertheless, went ahead and went full bore to overrule a decision that didn't need at that moment to be overridden. Would Roberts have later on through subsequent rulings overruled Roe versus Wade? I think 
The answer is probably yes, but it would have taken him a few more cases, a few more terms for that to happen. So I think you're right. I think Linda Greenhouse is right that Roberts, his difference from his conservative colleagues is more about style and pace uh, and maybe more in keeping with the semiotics of the turtles that are on the Supreme Court plaza and engraved into the walls, slow, deliberate justice, uh, but not so different when it comes to where he wants to end up. And Stephen, understanding now that we probably won't get to all nine justices, can I ask you specifically about Justice Clarence Thomas? You've been in the room listening to oral arguments before COVID. I think you're back now. And in your Atlantic piece, you talk about being in the room. One of the things that's just startling to me is I, being in Los Angeles, you know, I'm unable to attend. And the live stream was really a huge change for me because I felt like I was on a conference call with the justices. But I still remember that moment where the chief justice said something like, because they were going in order of seniority, Justice Thomas. And I think all of us expected that he was going to say pass or you know that there would just be silence. And instead, he became a really active participant in oral arguments. And that's continued now that they're back in person. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that evolution. And also, it seems to me that in a lot of ways, this is the moment of Clarence Thomas. It's not just his power on the court and his seniority, but also the power of his former clerks, many of whom are judges themselves and really picking up on things that he's saying on and off the bench. But it's just fascinating to me that he went from really not speaking for years to now being, again, a pretty active participant um, in the public phase of what the Supreme Court does, the oral arguments. Yes, it was a great surprise to hear his voice coming from that live stream back in May of 2020 when the first pandemic oral argument started happening. And then he kept talking argument after argument. And I thought it was a really good thing to hear from him because, you know, there are only nine justices making all these very important decisions. And it's one thing to read the decisions when they come, but it's important to hear what's on the minds of all the justices and to be bereft of that input from Justice Thomas, I think, wasn't a great thing. So when the court was moving back into the courtroom, I actually thought that it was a good idea for them to keep something of the pandemic oral argument style that they had shifted to so that Clarence Thomas would continue to have a voice in the oral arguments. He seemed to be more comfortable being called on and having a place in line to talk rather than having to jump in during the hurly-burly of the oral arguments in the old style, where you just sort of jump in whenever you feel like it. So the court adopted something like what I proposed in my SCOTUS blog piece that I wrote a couple years ago, where they do have, in addition to the free-for-all time during oral argument, they have a justice-by-justice progression where everyone gets a chance to ask questions. And he seemed more comfortable doing that. And I think it's good that we hear his voice. I remember that piece now. And you're right. They basically did adopt what you suggested. And it is helpful not just to know what he's thinking based on either a dissent or majority or concurrence, but actually 
to hear from him during oral arguments. And it does seem to drive much of the conversation. Now, probably last justice I want to think about for a, a moment only just based on time is Justice Kagan. And you rightfully talk about in your piece that she really is, I think, a strategic thinker in maybe the same way or similar way that Justice Roberts is. Could you talk to us a little bit about what we're seeing from her? Sure. It's an interesting development. Uh, And Josh Gerstein had a good piece about Justice Kagan at the end of December, which I'd recommend uh, your your listeners have a look at, um, basically saying that maybe she's given up on her role as the persuader to try to bring a conservative or two over to her side in certain key cases. I don't know if she has. I don't, haven't seen signs of that. But you can imagine when it's a six to three court, you've got, you know, this is a two to one. It's like you're on the playground and there's a teeter totter and you have a child who's 100 pounds on one side and then you have a child who's 50 pounds on the other. The 100 pound kid has all the power, all the control. And the 50 pounder up in the air can shout and jump all they like but they're not going to actually make any movement in that playground equipment. So I think that's kind of the realpolitik that the liberal justices are facing now. They're a little desperate. They can't just attract one justice over to their side in these key cases. They need two. And with the cases that are being heard this year on affirmative action, on religious rights, and their relationship with gay and lesbian rights, with cases yet to come on Section 230 and on Biden's debt relief program. I think the three liberal justices know that they have more than an uphill battle. They face a really difficult path ahead, if there is any path to once in a while winning one of these key and controversial cases. So Justice Kagan, really all three of the the liberal justices, especially Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, have been really assertive in these oral arguments, talking more than the conservatives in most cases. Justice Jackson has more words this term than any of the other justices. And Justice Kagan, I think, is using her brilliance in a little bit of a sharper way. You just mentioned that Justice Kagan is really becoming more pointed during oral arguments. I think understanding her role, and I love that idea of the seesaw where the liberals are basically the 50 pounds on one side, the conservatives are the 100 pounds on the other side. And there was a moment, Stephen, that you talk about in your Atlantic piece, and I remember listening to this thinking, is she gesturing at Justice Kavanaugh? It was oral arguments in the affirmative action case, and she talked about a hypothetical where a justice thought that it was very important to hire diverse clerks. I'm going to let you take it from there because you were there, but I thought that was just a fascinating moment, and it really shows what Justice Kagan's strategy is right now. Yeah. And if you listen to the oral argument, you can get about 80% of it, but there's an extra 20% that being there and witnessing it really adds to the dynamic at that moment between Justice Kagan and Justice Kavanaugh. So she asked a question of the lawyer arguing against affirmative action. Would it be constitutional for a judge to hire a diverse array of clerks where race was one of the factors that he was thinking about when he was hiring clerks? 
And the answer from the lawyer was, no, that's not constitutional. But she sits right next to Justice Kavanaugh, and Justice Kagan was gesturing in his direction as she was asking the question. And he looked at her with a look of great surprise, with his lips a little pursed and his eyebrows raised. And it's rather obvious what was going on because Justice Kavanaugh has been publicly proud for years of his diverse clerks, both um, on the DC Circuit, where he was a judge for many years, and as a justice. Of the 20 clerks he's hired, I think only three of them have been white men. So if he is considering race, at least in part, right, as one factor among many when deciding whom to hire as a clerk, is that just as unconstitutional as an admissions officer at the University of North Carolina or Harvard considering the race of an applicant among other factors like test scores and grades and recommendations? It's a really... uh, both biting and effective argument. So if you're that 50-pound kid on the top of the teeter-totter, you at least can make that 100-pounder sitting at the bottom less complacent, make him think a little bit, and be a little uncomfortable with decisions that he's about to reach that may not be completely consistent with his own personal hiring practices. It really was such a pointed moment because it wasn't just an abstract question. It was, I'm looking at you, Justice Kavanaugh, I'm looking at what you've said, and I'm looking at the reality of this bench, which is I have to get you and one other person to join me. And I could keep talking about this with you for hours, but I do want to focus a little bit more on What's in your Atlantic piece, again, we're talking with Stephen Macy, and the piece is the Supreme Court justices do not seem to be getting along. I have to believe that Supreme Court justices for decades, and maybe longer, have had moments where they really loathe each other, but there's something different. And I thought you did a fantastic job of explaining that this is not just behind closed doors. Could you highlight for us a little bit, a few examples of why did you decide to write this article? What is the, you know, what's backing up your thesis of, wow, they really don't seem to be getting along? I think first starting with oral arguments and then maybe pivoting to some of their writing. Sure. Well, I don't want to overstate the case because they're not throwing gavels at each other, right? They're not staring each other down during oral arguments. It's not obvious. It's not demonstrative, but there are these moments, these little cracks where you see things you didn't see in previous years, even when they were writing dissents at each other or concurrences at each other that were pretty barbed. There are some moments where you can see the conservatives kind of relaxing, luxuriating in their power. Not all the conservatives, but I think Samuel Alito is one of those who realizes that He's kind of got the court now. The court will go the direction he wants it to go. Stephen, there was a moment in the oral arguments where they were talking about a would-be website designer. And Justice Alito mentioned two different websites. And his interaction with Justice Kagan, to me, was instructive of maybe where the court is right now, or at least where Justice Alito is, where he seems really to have come into his own and seems to really be acknowledging his power on the court. Could you remind us, what were the two websites that were mentioned? What was his interaction with Justice Kagan? All right. Well, he did 
ask a question about JDate, which is a Jewish dating website. And he said he imagined it was a Jewish dating website. And Justice Kagan piped up to say, yes, it is. And then there was some laughter in the court, at which point he asked another hypothetical question about AshleyMadison.com, which is, I take it, a website for married people who are looking to cheat on their spouses. And he made a little joke toward Justice Kagan. Well, I imagine you know what AshleyMadison.com is also, which provoked a little laughter, but it was cringeworthy and it left her rolling her eyes a little bit. So yeah, I think that's an example of Justice Alito having maybe a little too much fun on the bench and luxuriating in his power in a way that he didn't in in previous terms. Well, and Justice Alito also, of course, seems to be in a lot of ways at the tipping point of what changed in the court because he's the one who authored the decision overturning Roe v. Wade, the Dobbs decision. And he's the one who did not temper his language. So, Stephen, I remember when the draft came out, I thought, and I believe I said publicly, they're going to soften the language. There's no way in the decision Mm -hmm. that overturns Roe v. Wade that the language will remain this strident. And I was absolutely wrong. And the language, in my view, is very strident. And I'm wondering if you could take us back to the leak and talk to us about how much you think it changed how the justices look at each other and how it continues to change, maybe whether or not they trust each other. Because, of course, the investigation into the leak showed basically that they're not going to tell us if they suspect anybody. They're not going to keep moving. And the investigation itself has had some questions. So how much did the leak itself, you think, shake the justices? Oh, I think they were shook from it, and they continue to be, and that's part of what we're seeing on the bench. And I share your surprise that that leaked Dobbs' opinion wasn't softened, at least a little bit, around the edges by some of the other justices who, like Justice Kavanaugh, like Chief Justice Roberts, who may have preferred something a little less strident that was basically an indictment of many Supreme Court justices as having reached a decision that was clearly and demonstrably wrong from the moment it was decided. It's really very harsh words for not just a few of their brethren, but many. But on the leak, I think it's fascinating and seeing how the investigation shaped up and how it came out with no person identified as the leaker at the end. And then the obvious question after reading that long report, from Gail Curley, the marshal of the court, who has never done anything like this investigation before, but is normally just there to keep order and security in the court. The obvious question is, were the justices asked any questions? Were they interviewed? Were they asked to sign an affidavit the way the other 97 employees of the court were? And you couldn't quite tell from the original report. So I contacted the Supreme Court and a number of other journalists did. We didn't hear anything back individually, but about 24 hours later, there was a supplemental notice from Gail Curley saying, yes, I did in fact speak to the justices. And the headlines that came out of that were that the justices were interviewed. And I think that is a bad conclusion based on the words that she released. She said she asked them questions and they asked her questions in a quote, iterative process. (laughs) 
which sounds to me like a discussion, not sitting down and being grilled, and definitely not being asked to sign the same sworn statement that they're not the leaker. So I just wonder, you know, this has fed into worries about the legitimacy of the court, where, you know, you have nearly 100 employees of the court interviewed, and only the nine justices were seen as uh, so far beyond reproach that they couldn't be touched and couldn't be interviewed. I wonder if Roberts, you know, had a blind spot here and didn't realize there would be so much disquiet about the justices not being interviewed and asked to sign the same affidavit. My theory is this. My theory is he raised the possibility, or at least some justices must have said, you know, should we be signing affidavits ourselves? And maybe some of them wanted to sign and others didn't. And you can't, of course, have a situation where seven or eight justices sign an affidavit saying I'm not the leaker and then one or two refusing to sign. That's going to make them look pretty suspicious. So I think because there were objections from at least one justice, they decided that no justice would be asked to sign the affidavit. And I have one additional piece on that, if I may. Some of the employees, some of the clerks, it said in the report, notated their affidavits to say that they did share some information about Dobbs and other cases with their spouses. So they didn't want to lie under oath. And my just hunch is that the justices, at least some of them who have partners, share occasionally a little bit of information with their spouses, and they didn't want to be on the record as notating that on an affidavit for all the world to see, that they, like some of their slightly errant clerks, were letting some secrets out of the building. Well, Stephen, that's exactly what I was going to ask you, which is, do you think that the justices were not put under oath because they didn't want to have to say, oh, as it turns out, I speak with my spouse, my best friend, my brother, my, you know, I hope this isn't true, but golfing partner, uh, because they didn't want to lie under oath. And But to me, the irony of that it says on the building, equal justice under law, exactly. and you treat the justices very different in this particular um, leak investigation. Now, I know our time is drawing to a close, at least for this discussion, but I think I have to ask, do you have any suspicion about who it might have been, if it was a justice, if it was a law clerk, if it was another member of the court staff, and if it was somebody in support of the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, or somebody who really disagreed with the decision? I have no particular hunches. I do think it was a bad decision and a bad look for the justices not to sign these affidavits. And it, I think, puts some suspicion on the justices or their spouses. Whether that suspicion is called for or not, it could have been allayed if all nine would have signed the same affidavit that all of their colleagues signed. Stephen, now, as we're looking ahead, you mentioned in your piece in The Atlantic, and you've written about as the Supreme Court correspondent for The Economist, you've written a lot about the cases this term and the current court. For people who are listening at home, can you talk to us as we end our conversation just a little bit about whether or not you think this antagonism will hold? Will it hold during oral arguments? Will we continue to see dissents that are not 
submitted respectfully but with sorrow, something that was highlighted in your Atlantic piece? Or do they kind of get over the leak and settle into their respective positions and what this court's going to look like? I'm not sure what we'll see in the coming months. They do have a few months of oral arguments left, and then we'll have decisions uh, in these big cases coming down. I think the tensions are not going to go away. Maybe they'll put their guard up a little bit in oral arguments now that they know they're being watched a little more carefully with a little more scrutiny. But they're only human. There are bound to be moments where a gesture or an eyebrow or a crossword might come out which we can make note of. I'll just note one more thing about an irony in coverage of the court since the audio live streams began. It's great that anyone can listen live into any oral argument, but it's causing Supreme Court journalists a little bit of a choice. You have a choice between attending the oral argument and seeing and taking in the full view of the justices, their words and their actions and their gestures, but not covering it live and tweeting, because of course you can't bring a laptop into the courtroom, or you can report live on the audio live stream without seeing what's happening. And I've noticed in a couple of these big cases, some very notable Supreme Court journalists are opting to stay home on their laptops on the very big days. So the justices are less visible to journalists and therefore to the world on the days of those very big oral arguments, because some journalists are opting to listen in and cover them live. That's a fascinating consequence of the live stream that I didn't even think about, which is there are probably just fewer eyes on them. There are. Stephen Maisie, I'm so glad that we could have this conversation. I'd love to talk more when the, some of the big decisions come out. Again, we've been talking with Stephen. He covers the Supreme Court for The Economist. He's a professor of political studies at Bard Early College, Manhattan. He's also the author of American Justice 2015, their dramatic 10th term of the Roberts Court. Stephen, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it was great to be with you. I'd be happy to come back, Jessica. Thanks for having me. We want to thank all our listeners for being part of these conversations. As always, please rate, review, subscribe. You can find me across social media at Levinson Jessica, and we wish everybody a great day. 